Welcome to the podcast of Seven Rivers Presbyterian Church in Lakanto, Florida. Our passion is to be a church that enjoys God, experiences His grace, and reflects His love to our community and beyond. To join our local body in financial support of this ministry, visit our website at sevenrivers.org. So here we are in, in the book of Acts as a church. We're having fun. Uh, the story of the church. Let's remember the story of humankind, the story of the Bible, right? Is that um, God wants a family of his own. God intends to have a family of his own. God is going to reveal himself um, to a people. And so God creates. He has uh, there's just blissful harmony and joy. And then man walks away from God and it all goes to ruin. Uh, it's broken. And that brokenness, that uh, brother killing brother, the animosity uh, that immediately breaks out is still extant in our world at every place we turn today, isn't it? Even in our own country. Um, yet uh, God says that uh, this is not going to remain. And so God himself comes, uh, God's son comes into the world and intervenes. For three years he trains um, apostles who will take his place when he returns uh, to heaven and, um, uh, and then he offers himself up sacrificially as a substitute to redeem his people. He dies. Three days later, uh, he's resurrected from the dead. Uh, for the next 40 days, he makes a, a number of public appearances before he ascends into heaven. And 10 days after that, uh, the Holy Spirit is poured out on, uh, on the, the followers of Jesus and, uh, and there's an explosion. Thousands of people become followers of Jesus. And uh, well, this creates a problem because just a few days later, thousands more actually become followers of Jesus. Remember, the Romans uh, weren't fond of them. The Jews aren't fond of them. Um, immediately they fall under um, um, oppression. So the apostles are, listen, they already killed Jesus. They're harassing the uh, apostles. They... Um, uh, throw them in jail. They're kicked out of the synagogue. Uh, they're, they're, um, they lose the, jo- the Jewish uh, social security system. There's no care for their widows. There's no care for uh, the poor among them. What are they going to do? And in the midst of this, we see God shaping his family, his beautiful new community. So stand up. We're going to read from Acts chapter 4, starting at verse 32 and on into chapter 5. You're not, you're not going to believe what we're about to read actually happened. Um, now the full number of those who believe were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. They had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Astounding, right? Astounding care, these This new family of God had for each other. 
But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property and with his wife's knowledge he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came upon all who heard it. Then the young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. And when the young men came in, they found her dead and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Jesus, we bow our heads. We are desperate. We are hungry. We need you to teach us. We need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And we need for great grace to rest on us as it did these um, followers of yours 2,000 years ago. Lord, would you be so kind that it would be so. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated, please. I love the challenge of culture shaping, right? Taking something and, uh, and, and shaping the culture. Like, consider a restaurant. Consider that you're opening um, a restaurant. And, um, uh, and, and consider actually that you're a, a, a customer visiting that restaurant for the first time. And it's drizzling outside. And when you pull up, as somebody comes outside of the restaurant, opens an umbrella and walks you uh, um, inside to make sure uh, that you don't get rained on uh, at all. They seat you um, courteously. Um, the, the wait staff seems uh, pleasant. In fact, for any request you make, they say it would be my pleasure. And um, imagine if um, sort of surprisingly they come out with um, um, some... Um, uh, uh, some little dish of something that you haven't even ordered. Maybe you haven't even ordered yet at all. And, um, and uh, you said, well, we, we didn't order that. Well, I know, I know. But the chef's trying something new and he just wanted you to taste it. He really wants to know what you think. So, so this, is just, this is on us. You just enjoy this for a minute uh, before we get your order. You'd start to be kind of impressed with this outfit, wouldn't you? Suppose if uh, at the end of the meal when they brought your bill, there was a fresh giant chocolate chip cookie. Um, that you got no charge on the house, right? Okay. How many are going back to that restaurant? I am. And one thing you would know is somebody is shaping the culture of, uh, of this place. Somebody has an idea. Let me ask you a question. Would it be easier to shape the culture of a brand new restaurant or one that had been around for 30 years? Which would be more difficult? Well, the answer is obvious. If you, if you had to buy into a restaurant, already had a staff, already people in the community, already know what it's offering people, um, and as soon as you started to bring change or new life or shift the culture, what would people immediately say? That's not 
the way we've always done it, right? That's not the way we do it here. Listen, we've done it this way for 30 years. It's, uh, it's always worked. And the truth is nobody's come to that restaurant in the last 10 years, right? Uh, but they remember the glory years. That's why, by the way, you start new churches. Uh, because once a church gets past about 30 years, people get ossified. And um, yeah, there are churches all over our country that have 45 people in them and, uh, and virtually no new members for years, but they will not, um, uh, they will not make any adjustments uh, at all. Um, no, it works for us. So culture shaping, when something is new, it creates a, a tremendous um, opportunity, like a new family. Remember when Diane and I were um, married, 1877, and um, we had this new uh, thing. So one of the things we said is we're going to church. That's what we're going to do. We're going to go to church. So we went to church on our honeymoon um, because we're saying this is who we are. We're going to do this every week of our whole life. On vacation, no matter where we are, no matter what we're doing, we're going to church. It's who you are. Now let me ask, would that be easier to establish at the very beginning of your marriage or say when you have teenagers in the house suddenly announcing, we're going to church every week. And how do the teenagers respond? Mom and dad, your spiritual life is inspiring to us. And uh, we appreciate this fresh wind uh, blowing through our home. And uh, we support you uh, in this. No, the response you're apt to get is what? Well, enjoy it. (laughs) Come home, tell us how it was. Um, We have no intention of joining you. I remember when uh, our kids were um, little and they used to, we signed them up for all the, you know, t-ball teams, softball teams, all that. And then what parents are supposed to do if they're good parents, they get them playing. It's, you know, how can you be an American apple pie, right? Baseball. And, um, um, you know what we found? We found ourselves at Bicentennial Park in Crystal River four nights a week, sometimes till 10 o'clock at night with these little kids, uh, being chewed on by no for hours. Um, watching the most boring display of sports I've ever seen in my life. Now, one kid out there could throw a strike, um, walk after walk after walk, um, and, and night after night after night, finally we looked at each other and said, this is not what we want to be. We're shaping a family, and we're not going to sit here at a fence watching these, unit- these lunatics yell at the umpires um, because they're, some six-year-old, uh, you know, did, did something uh, out there get called out or something. This is not who we're going to be. We're actually going to have a family and we're going to go home at nights and we're going to eat dinner together and we're going to talk about the day together and we're going to be together and the kids are going to do their homework. We're all actually going to get some sleep. And, and, and you can imagine when I said to my kids, you're, none of you are playing baseball. Girls, you're not playing softball anymore. They didn't say, dad, your wisdom just, uh, I'm thankful for the the, the blessing you are in our lives. Um, now that the culture had to be shaped, right? And so the culture in Christ church, it's new, it's prime time. And when the curtain opens on Acts four to five, we see Jesus is shaping the culture of his family. In Acts chapter five, verse 11 is the first time we ever read the word church. It's the first time this group of Jesus followers is actually called the church. Jesus is shaping his church, and what we see him doing 2,000 years ago, he continues to do today, shaping the culture. You with me? Ready? Here we go, two points. Hallelujah. Um, first point is this, in Christ's church, 
Um, there's a culture of generosity. There's a culture of mutual care and, uh, and support. So becoming a follower of Jesus was proving costly. That shouldn't have been a surprise, right? When you have a, a crucified uh, Messiah that you're following, um, but they didn't care. They didn't care to avoid um, suffering. They wanted to be a part of this new thing, the church. And remember what we read, the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. They were united. No one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. That's astounding. It wasn't their stuff. They had everything in common. There was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds and they laid it into the apostles' feet and it was distributed uh, to the needy. It was beautiful. Onlookers remarked about this. My how they love one another. And one of the men who modeled this generosity, his name was Joseph, right? Joseph actually took his own property, sold it, brought the proceeds, brought all of the proceeds uh, to the apostles to be distributed. In fact, his sacrifice was so remarkable that they changed his name. They called him what? Barnabas. And Barnabas plays a key role throughout the expansion of the church um, in the New Testament. Barnabas, they called him because it means encouragement. And you can only imagine how encouraging it was to the apostles to say that not only were their necks on the line, you know, not only were they um, fighting the good fight for the, to be followers of Jesus, but people were coming alongside them and, and joining in the shaping of this whole new people of God. It's clear that in Christ's church, neither hoarding nor neglect of the poor would be tolerated. The culture of generosity is being what? It's being set, okay? So let's ask a couple questions. What's the source of generosity, right? Why are people not naturally lavish with their resources? What lies behind our stinginess, right? And there's a lot of good answers to that, right? Like self-absorption, um, like we hold on to our stuff because we think we made it, we earned it, uh, it was our hard work. Um, but I would also suggest at the, at the root of it is fear. We fear we won't have enough. Even people who have a lot, which is most of us compared to the rest of the world, fear it's, it might not be enough, right? We might be a burden to our kids. We might, um, uh, we might run out. Um, and, and, and let's face it, it's, it's not just we're being cautious, but it's also we fear that we, we won't be able to afford the new kitchen we want, the new boat that we want, um, that trip to Italy that we're hoping uh, to go on, that somehow or another, some of the um, uh, things we long to do in this life, we will not get to do. So what's the source of their generosity? What produces such a a generous uh, people that we read about in Acts chapter four. Well, what does it say in verse 31? This is the verse right before the, the, the scripture I read. It says of that group, when they prayed, the place in which they were gathered was shaken and they were all filled with, uh, what's the job of the Holy Spirit? They're all filled with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is given to us by God. Jesus ascends to heaven, the Spirit descends if you have Jesus, you have his spirit living inside of you. He is the surety that guarantees Jesus' inheritance. What's Jesus' inheritance? You are. You are given to Jesus by the Father as a just reward for his sacrifice, and you belong to Jesus. 
And he gives the Holy Spirit to secure what's eternally his, to bring you ultimately uh, to him. And the Holy Spirit will never leave you. So what is the Holy Spirit constantly doing inside of us? Uh, Romans tells us again and again, the Holy Spirit is whispering in your heart. The Holy Spirit is telling you that once, um, even when you were sinners, Christ died for you. That God loves you. The Bible says that um, there's nothing that will separate you from God, right? Not death, not principalities, not powers. Nothing will tear you away from God. And the Holy Spirit is constantly reminding us to be secure. You're not alone. You're the beloved. You belong to God. The fear filled with the Holy Spirit. Not only that assurance, but what does verse 33 say? And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection and great grace was upon them all. Grace, unmerited favor. God's favor was on them. They had experienced this generosity. They know that the God who would not withhold his own son, but gave his own son for them to be crucified for them. Is he really gonna withhold anything we need? Now I I want you to think that through. I want you to apply what I just said to you. The God who did not withhold his own son, but gave up his own son for you. Think about your worries, think about your fears, think about you. Don't you think he has you? Don't you think he's good? Don't you think he's for you? Don't you think you could live out of that by the Holy Spirit's help? Listen, the more assured you are of God's love and provision, the more you're set free to be generous. And if your life is not characterized by generosity, then you're not getting the culture and you're not hearing and believing the testimony of the Holy Spirit. So I have a favorite moment when I teach the pastor's class and, and all of you have been through it have, have heard me um, tell the story. It's just a story, it's, it's something I made up, right? It's, um, it's a, a um, um, couple, uh, they have one child, one son, somebody breaks in their house and kills um, the child, the, the, the murderer is caught. Uh, there's no doubt about their guilt, they're t- taken to prison. But the couple, instead of hating the murderer, they go down to the prison and they forgive them. And I'll I'll just abbreviate the story because it's very dramatic and and really exquisitely told. Um, But um, they they not only go down there and forgive uh, them, uh, the murderer, for what he's done. And I'll ask the class, now, would that be grace? Would it be grace to uh, someone who's killed your, your, your son, your only son, your only child, uh, to forgive them? Would that be grace? And it's interesting because the whole class just sits there. Um, and I said, yes, that would be grace, right? That, what, what has that person merited? They've merited your wrath and your hatred uh, and your disdain for them. That's what they've merited, but you give them unmerited kindness and love, right? It's unmerited favor. That's exactly what grace is. That would be grace. Now, I suppose, suppose they not only did that, I said, because that's not the grace of the Bible, by the way. Suppose they actually went down to the jail, got the person out, brought him home, and uh, and to make a long story short, they brought him home, they adopt him as their own son, they give them their son's bedroom, they give them their son's name, they give them their son's inheritance, right? And I said, what would that be? And uh, not every class, but about every third class, somebody says what a woman just said a couple weeks ago when I was teaching. A woman right on the front row looked at me and she said, that would be stupid. That's what that would be. And, And I love it because exactly 
Exactly. Stupid grace we sing. How sweet the sound that saved a what? A really good person like me. It's, it's astounding grace. Great grace was on them all. And they gave. They loved each other like they'd been loved, right? Um, so let me tell you something. Generosity is, is an apologetic of the church. It argues Christianity. You know, the apostles were preaching what? What did it say in verse 33? They were preaching the resurrection, right? Now, when Jesus was around those 40 days uh, after his um, resurrection, they could just say, look, there he is, right? If you don't believe that he resurrected from the dead, go look. Now Jesus has ascended to heaven. What's the great proof of the resurrection? You. You. It's new life. It's people doing things they wouldn't do except for the power of the resurrection is making us new. What the apostles preached is authenticated by and embodied by this radical new community. New people doing things that people just do not do if, it weren't, if the resurrection weren't true. In other words, all our dead selfishness has been removed and new life. We're acting like the people that God's people were created to be, not thinking of ourselves, but thinking of others ahead of ourselves. When you see bold love, don't you wonder where it comes from? There's two sisters in this church, and, um, and, and they, they, they send cards all the time, but they don't just you know, write their name. They always have these lovely notes of encouragement in the cards. And, and if there's, um, uh, I get them from them, I get them from them throughout the year. Somebody's sick in our family, certainly we get them. Anything else is happening, um, we get them. There's never any money in them, but I, these cards come, and, and uh, they're lovely. Um, cards and, and both my wife had just commented that, that, that they, they both do this and it stands out and so she asked them one day how did you guys become you and, uh, and they both w- without missing a beat said our mother see when there's, when there's great love it comes from somewhere right it comes from somewhere um, there's a there's a uh, a family um, I know that um, have kids that are uh, delightful and joyous and, and, uh, and loving and, and, and sort of unique in, in their, um, their, you know, their, their, their joy of life, their spunk, their smiles, their, you know. And, um, and I said, I wonder where that comes from. And um, my wife said, well, I was at their house and uh, it was the most remarkable thing. When the husband came home from work, the wife uh, went up and greets him as soon as he walks through the door with a kiss. That's old school, right? And all the kids get up from whatever they're doing and they all go to their dad and they all hug together and they all greet him too. It's just one of those little things where a little light goes off and says, somebody's establishing in a home a what? A culture, right? A culture of love. And it shows. I remember uh, when I was... 17, I graduated high school. I went to work with a pastor in West Virginia and um, in Appalachia, uh, tremendous poverty. And um, I remember being at the pastor's house. uh, That's where I lived during the summer. 
and poor people would come. Their trailer had caught on fire. They'd lost everything. And, and, and it could be, you know, dinner time. There'd be a knock on the door. They'd open the door and there would be impoverished people in the community that knew the pastor lived there, I guess. And uh, they'd just say, we got nothing. Can you help us? And I remember the pastor's wife going into the, uh, a bedroom and emptying clothes out of a dresser and just getting her husband to cart it out and, and, and give it to them, give them furniture. Not furniture from a shed out back. Not furniture from a, uh, you know, the clothes closet or something down in the church basement. Their stuff. Their stuff that they were using. The only stuff they had. Out would go a couch. Out would go a, their stuff. And I remember thinking, who does that? And what do we discover? Jesus people do that. Got it? The culture. It's a culture of generosity. Where did it come from? It comes from Jesus. That's the way he loves. It comes from Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's the way they love each other. That's the way his people love. Got it? So a culture of generosity, and secondly, and finally, um, a culture of authenticity. Jesus is establishing the culture uh, that in his church, pretending is not acceptable. In fact, it's deadly. May not pretend in Christ's church. So let's talk about what happened. Who was the hero of the generosity? Who did I already mention? What was his name? Barnabas. Barnabas caused quite a stir with what he did. Selling property, bringing the whole proceeds and donating it to the needy. But somebody was watching that. Somebody saw all the attention that Barnabas got. Somebody was really um, uh, drawn uh, to that. Their names were Ananias and Sapphira. They wanted some of that honor, some of that recognition too. So they sell their property and they represent themselves as donating all of it. Uh, But they didn't. Let's suppose they got 50 grand for their property and they were bringing 25 grand. But they said, we got 25 grand for our property, right? And, we, and we're giving all 25. They, uh, that's how they represented it. Now, Peter becomes aware of this and he confronts Ananias. And you know what he says to Ananias? He asks, what'd you sell the property for? And when Ananias says, Peter says, Ananias, I know that's not true. I know that's not true. And you know, Ananias, you didn't have to sell your property. It wasn't compulsory. Nobody made you sell your property at all. You didn't have to give anything. And having sold your property, you didn't have to give it all. But you lied. You misrepresented what you did. And of course, he did it in alliance with uh, his wife and God takes them both out and God is saying, this is not going to be the culture of my family, right? In my family, we're gonna be truth tellers. In my family, there's gonna be authenticity. So here's what I want you to see. Authenticity requires us to see the sin under the sin. I'm gonna explain what that means, but go with me. There's a sin under the sin. What's the the obvious sin of Ananias and Sapphira? They what? They lied, but why did they lie? See, that's when you're really getting into holiness. That's when you're really getting into life change. Not when you just change outward behavior, but you understand where did that outward behavior come from? What's wrong with me at the core that produced the lie, right? Why would lying bring about such a stern penalty? 
If, if, if God took people out for lying, then who would stand, right? Um, so the problem here, the, the issue here is there's a sin to be rooted out that's more important. And what makes this moment so pivotal is the gospel is at stake. Now, a lot of people in our world would say, Christianity is doing good things. Christianity is obeying. Christianity is doing the right things. It's doing good things. If you're a Christian, you don't do bad things uh, and you do good things. Um, Sin is doing bad things. Like if you steal, if you're unfaithful to your spouse, if you excoriate someone with your tongue, you know, with your words, rip their heart out verbally, um, those are bad things. Do good things, don't do bad things. That's Christianity. Um, But what did Ananias and Sapphira do? They made a huge charitable gift for the poor. And everywhere in the world, people would call that what? What? Good, you'll get a plaque at at the headquarters, right? You'll be a chairman of the board if you make many gifts like that. You'll be on the board, Uh, you'll be honored, right? That's a good thing. They gave their money and a chunk of it for the poor. So listen, sin is also doing good things for the wrong reason. You with me? That makes it a lot more complicated, doesn't it? Ananias and Sapphira sold their property and gave a generous contribution. What's wrong with that? Their motive. They didn't do it for the glory of God. They didn't do it for the good of the needy. They did it for for their glory and for their good, because they wanted the recognition that Barnabas got. They wanted to look good. They wanted to to pad their resume, their reputation. They wanted to produce their own righteousness. It's an attack on the gospel. That's why God acts so swiftly and so severely, because the gospel is all we've got, right? Right at this pivotal moment, he has to make it very clear that we have no righteousness of our own. Listen, um, is it a good deed to give a motorized scooter to a handicapped child? Is it a good deed uh, to volunteer for a middle school retreat as a counselor? It's a stupid thing to do, by the way. Um, But is it a good deed? I mean, who else is gonna do it? Um, is it a good deed to be a missionary surgeon in Bangladesh, suffering the, uh, helping the poorest of the poor in the world? Well, you could make a fortune in the United States um, being a surgeon here. Is it a good deed to sponsor a poor child through compassion? The answer is no, it's offensive to God if the reason you do it is to embellish your own record. You with me? How many people do good things ultimately in the face of God, saying, I produce my own righteousness here. I don't need you, I don't need yours. I'm not that bankrupt. Why is it so hard for the rich to go to heaven? Why is it harder for a rich man to get into heaven than a camel through the eye of a needle? Because the one thing you need to go to heaven is what? Need, need, desperate need. And so, our good deeds can cloud our judgment. Ananias and Sapphira were using charity as a way to get a reputation for being moral and spiritual pillars. They were attempting to to 
earn their righteousness before God and others by their good deeds and they miss the gospel. The gospel is to confess, I have no righteousness. I have none. I have no argument before God on my own. All I've got is Jesus and his righteousness. That's all. All my good works are filthy rags. Any attempt to justify ourselves is to stab God in the heart. It completely nullifies what Jesus did. Why did Jesus have, Jesus was a fool. Why did he come and die for our sins? Why did he live the life he lived? Right? We could do it ourselves. Jesus did not come into the world just to die for your sins. He could have accomplished that when he was five years old, right? Right? As soon as he's cognizant to make a choice, he could have said, I'm here, I'm gonna die for my people's sins, and he could have done it. Five years old, given himself as a sacrifice. What did Jesus come to do? He came to be what we were not. He came to be what God created us to be, obedient to our Father, loving our Father, keeping the, the, uh, producing a righteous life that we could not produce so that his righteous life would be imputed to us, cover us, so that someday we could hear God say, well done, good and faithful servant, even the people like us. You with me? We have to repent of our good deeds when they are done to curry favor with God and man. Listen, this changed my life. Because, listen, I grew up in the church. I grew up with the idea, non-Christians do bad things. Christians do good things. Hopefully I'm gonna do enough good things that, that, that at the end of my life, God will say, well done to me. Well done, good and faithful servant. And that's why uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go to church every week. And that's why I'm not only going to tithe, I'm going to double tithe. I'm going to leave the rest of these namby-pamby church-going people in America in the dust. Because I'm going to be one of the few in the proud. I accomplished the latter. Uh, I'm going to be um, uh, all in for Jesus. And hopefully at the end of my life, you know, hopefully I can keep it up. Hopefully I won't get tired. Hopefully I won't fall off the wagon. Hopefully all the way to the end I'll run through the tape and I'll win the reward. And then you end up reading Romans 1, right? Where it says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God unto salvation. For in the gospel there is a righteousness that comes from God. It's not a righteousness that we produce and give to God as our entrance payment to glory. It's a righteousness that comes from God to us. It's a righteousness he produces, we do not produce. Changed my life. I'll tell you the most amazing thing is that you guys didn't find me floating in the fountain face down out there. Because Ananias, when I read this story, I'm reading my story. This is who I was. Someone, because you want to go one more than, uh, than, 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 than going to church and tithing and, and, and uh, you know, I don't um, smoke or dance or chew or go with girls who do. You know, if it, it, not only that, why don't you become a preacher? I'll give my whole life for Jesus. What a fool. Um, you know, um, Christ produces the righteousness, right? That's all we've got. Any attempt to validate ourselves is just rejecting Jesus and the gospel and grace. It's a capital offense, right? It's a capital offense. So a friend of mine was telling me that in his church he had, as a pastor, in his church he had a critic. This critic was always scowling, kind of shaking his head whenever he preached. 
Um, problem was this critic, critic lived an exemplary life, really knew the Bible, really um, um, sharp dude. And, um, um, and on top of that, he and his wife, now they lived in the deep south. I mean like Alabama deep south. And, um, and, and on top of all their just general goodness, and he was an attorney, and he was smart, and he was put together, and his kids were cute, they adopted two African-American children, which sort of put them on, on a real pedestal of, wow, look, even in this you know, racially infused culture, they love Jesus so much that they've even done that. And uh, my friends just tell me this guy just uh, was critical um, and how shocked he was one week when he's preaching and he looks out and this guy, instead of with his head in his Bible, you know, is, is sitting there and tears are running down his face. And afterwards he gets with him and he said, hey man, what, what was going on today? He said, God opened my eyes to see what a wretched man I am that I adopted those kids because I love the looks that people give when they look at me and see me with these kids. They think, wow, what a loving guy that is. He said, and I realized for the first time that I adopted those kids not because I loved them, but because I loved me. And what I did was offensive to God. Adopting needy children was offensive to God because I did it for my glory. You get it? You gotta discover the sin under the sin. And last of all, um, authenticity requires telling the truth about ourselves. Some people go to church their whole life and they never hear anybody in their church confess their sins. They couldn't even remember. We tell the truth about ourselves. What if God had let Ananias and Sapphira get away with it? What if he let them be lauded for their amazing gift? You know what, Ananias would have become an elder and Sapphira would have been teaching women's Bible studies and the church would have been captured by an arrogant, smug spirit. A friend of mine, I, I, didn't, uh, I didn't know him, he wasn't actually a friend of mine, just uh, I, I knew the name. Uh, one day the phone rang and, and, and he had called me and he said, um, he said, can I just talk to you about something? He said, I'm a pastor of a large church, but I'm so lonely. He said, because nobody in our church seems to need Jesus. Nobody needs the gospel. Nobody's broken here. He said, everybody in this church is beautiful. They're beautiful, their kids are beautiful, they live in beautiful houses and manicured lawns, and they drive the nicest cars, and their kids go to private school, and um, they all go to the club for lunch after church. Everybody's beautiful, and I'm so alone because I'm not. And I, and I can't even find comrades to do life with. He said, the only people who get the gospel in this church are the kids whose kids, uh, are, the, are the couples whose kids get addicted or their business goes bankrupt or they get divorced. One of them's been unfaithful. Those are the only people whose lives crumble enough that they need Jesus. Wow. He said, it's oppressive to pastor here. No one needs Jesus. 
No one knows they need Jesus. But in Jesus' family, we tell the unvarnished truth about ourselves. You, you want the proof of that? This story is in the Bible. Ananias and Sapphira, it's in the Bible. It's the very beginning of the church. And two people are dead in the narthex. And, and they put it in the book. Don't you think if you're telling your church history, you'll leave that one out? Look at the whole Bible's like that, right? Here we've got um, Peter uh, who denies Christ. And it's in the Bible. He didn't leave it out, right? Who wrote the Bible? The apostles wrote the Bible. What did the apostles do in the Garden of Gethsemane? They all ran like cowards, right? Peter denies Christ in front of a little girl and they put it in the story. When I'm writing my life story, there's a bunch of stuff I'm not putting in there, right? They put it in the story. And not only that, one of the 12 um, betrayed Christ and hung himself. One of the first members of the session, one of the first elders, right? One of the first key guys turned on Jesus and then hung himself. That's in the story, right? And you can read about uh, the early church and you can read about people in Corinth uh, who were practicing, had sexual practices that'll curl your toes. It's right there, it's in the story. And you can read about people who were fighting together in the churches and causing all sorts of conflict. You can read about racial discrimination. Um, Paul has to rebuke Peter in the church. You can read about their discriminating against um, the, the, the Greek widows in the church. It's all in there because that's what God's people do. They tell the truth. They tell it because the church doesn't have righteousness, not of our own. All the righteousness we have is from our Savior. That's all we have. We have nothing to be proud of, do we? Um, the culture of too much of church history is lying and deceit and covering up. And God tells us in Acts chapter 5 what he thinks about that. You might have seen this week that the French... Um, Catholic Church announced that since 1950, there have been over 330,000 children that they can document that have been molested by priests in the church. 330,000. Now, God bless them for telling that now. But that represents 70 plus years at least of what? of deceit. You know, I'm a history major. Um, I'm a pastor. And I've read books about slavery recently. You know what? I'll tell you something I didn't know. I didn't know churches owned slaves. The people, when they die, they had slaves, they leave them to the church. It's like people make a, maybe a big financial gift when they die. Part of their wealth goes to the church. They love their church. So people left slaves to the church. And then the church would rent them out for income. You tell the truth. I never knew that truth. I didn't know that pastors owned slaves. You know, in too many churches, they, they have experiences. People, you could sit there, if, if I asked you to tell me your experience, the line would go out the door. Pastor Bob, let's just call him Pastor Bob. Suddenly you have a pastor, Pastor Bob, and one week he's on, he goes on sabbatical. He's not there anymore. And the sabbatical stretches on. And then finally, some leader in the church gets up and says, well, in a sabbatical, Pastor Bob decided that um, uh, he really uh, isn't called to the ministry anymore and, and he's going to serve God in some other field. And you know what the truth is? Pastor Bob was caught in five extramarital affairs, you know? But they don't tell the church. And when you ask, why, don't, why didn't you tell us the truth? What will they say? 
Because if we had told you the truth, it would disillusion you and you wouldn't be Christians. But I'll tell you what's the most disillusioning of all. It's the pretending and the posturing and the inauthenticity, right? I have a friend who, who, who was the son of a pastor. He could say, I'll just say this, that what I saw in my home was not what was portrayed by my father in public. Who he was in public was not who he was at home, and that inauthenticity kills the church, and it kills Christianity and our children. I went to a missions um, conference uh, to speak at, at a church, they were into missions. I mean, big into missions. They were very proud that they were big into missions. And this was their highlight of the year. And they, when you walked in the church, they had a giant map of the world and pins everywhere, all the places we do missions. And, uh, and so the first night, they just had a dinner, and all the missionaries came and told their stories. I'll never forget it. The, one of the first ones said, we do prison ministry. And, um, you know, we, we go in this so-and-so prison, and we had seven converts uh, in the last year. And then, um, then the next person, uh, a, a couple people later, was somebody else who did prison ministry, and they said, well, we're actually in five prisons, and we had 42 converts um, this year in our prison ministry. And, whoa. And then uh, a couple people later, someone said, we're actually in 17 states, our prison ministry, and um, we had a thousand, uh, we had about 1,242 converts. And I wanted to throw up. You know what nobody said? Nobody said prison ministry is hard. Nobody said, you know, I see people respond to Christ in there and then they get out and I've discipled them for five years and they get out and in six months they've recommitted a crime even worse than before. This is frustrating. This is hard. There's so much darkness. And so often I doubt, and I'm afraid that I'm giving my life to something that doesn't even matter. And you know what I told them that the next day? I told them what I witnessed and what I experienced. You should have seen the whole group. You should have seen people starting to cry and say, I know. I know, but we can't tell the truth because then the church won't give us money. Then we won't get supported. We have to show up and give them a success story. Lying, inauthenticity. Um, Tammy Faye Baker, you remember her? Um, just to want this on, quick, take it off. That's, uh, <laughs> she was known for what? Her makeup. And I don't know if this story is true, but one time her husband walked in her, was walking in her dressing room before their show, and uh, I said, it's Jim, it's Jim at the door. And she said, no, 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 don't come in, Jim. And she turned to the people who were working with her and said, he's never seen me without my makeup. I wonder if you come to church with your makeup on or not. One time, part of our youth staff had some girls down around Bradenton. They were going to the beach or something. And then one of them had a reaction or something, got stung by a, you know, a, a, a ray or something of jellyfish. And they took her to the hospital, they ended up keeping her for the night, so the, the whole little group of girls stayed down there, like for the whole night, got a little hotel room. And then Sunday morning, they got her out of the emergency room or whatever, and they're all making their way back to Citrus County. They hadn't showered all night, they didn't have any clothes, they hadn't planned to stay down there, they were all coming from the beach. And they're pulling into our community right when church is starting here. 
And so the woman on staff said, what do you say we go? And everybody's like, no, look at us. We can't go. So let's just go. So they piled in here and they were an absolute mess. And our staff member told us that week, you would not believe the glares, the looks, the shame we felt at how dare those people disrespect the church by looking like that when they come to church. She said, it was so good. It was so good for me. It was so good for the girls because we experience what it's like for non-Christians to walk into church. God have mercy on us. Last night a woman came out, it was her first time. She was covered with tats. Her husband was covered with tats. Their kid was covered with tats, you know. And she said to me, it's, our, it's my first time at church. She said, I've been wanting to come to a church, but when I've tried it before, I just saw the pe- way people looked at me. God's people, there's an authenticity. We admit the problem is us and how desperately we need Jesus. So let it be said of Seven Rivers Church that such great grace fell on them that they didn't have to pretend. They didn't have to weary themselves pretending to be good. They could rest in the righteousness of their Savior and Him alone. Amen. Father, would it be so, may great grace fall on us. May we be filled with your Holy Spirit so that we can confess to one another our deep neediness, our fear, our shame, our sin, our failure, our unbelief, our struggle. We can confess it to one another and find brothers and sisters who would say, I know, I know, me too. And then we could run to you for refuge again and again and again. Lord, you shaped the culture of your people 2,000 years ago. Would you do it here too? We pray in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information or would like to help support the local body of Seven Rivers, please visit our website at sevenrivers.org.